0: To some of you, it may be no surprise the hunters are among some of the most common individuals to go missing. There are entire books in the Missing 411 series by David Politis dedicated to experienced hunters who have seemingly vanished into thin air, never to be found. Tonight, we're going to be exploring some of these cases along with a couple that are even stranger. Cases where experienced outdoorsmen suddenly disappear only to turn up days or even months later, sometimes in entirely different locations? Is it a glitch in the matrix, time travel, or can it all be explained by a simple head injury? Well, truthfully, nothing about these cases is exactly simple. Actually, most of them remain unexplained. Even with the instances of missing hunters, the answers aren't always so straightforward. So, let's get into tonight's episode. Four Skilled Outdoorsmen Who mysteriously vanished. Case number one Robert Winters, still missing. Robert Winters was a 78 year old experienced hunter who went missing in 1969. He disappeared in Sparks Lake, Oregon, while hunting with his three sons, also experienced hunters. They understood weather conditions weren't ideal for the higher elevation so they agreed to set up base camp. When it came time to split up, they each claimed a certain area near camp. Again, they agreed to stay at a lower elevation, only covering familiar territory. Though the men were separated for quite some time, they were never too far apart. A couple of hours later, each of the sons had returned to camp, but there was no sign of Robert. Initially, the brothers combed the area on foot, searching in and around where their father set up earlier that day. After nearly an hour of searching independently, they sought real help to locate their father. It was getting dark and the weather was only getting worse, so they were considerably scared. Eventually, over 60 searchers were assembled. Unfortunately, shortly after Robert went missing, the area experienced heavy snowfall and a snowstorm overtook the entire area. The only early discovery were some tracks in the snow, These tracks were at a higher elevation, traversing upwards, not in the same area or direction Robert would likely have been in. They were later determined not to be his footprints. Roughly nine months after Robert's disappearance, searchers discovered some of his belongings near the area he vanished. All of the items looked to have been carefully removed. There was no shredding, tearing, or ripping involved. No blood either. Just one singular hiking boot a single glove, a pair of glasses, and Robert's gun. All near the base of a tree. In addition to the nearly perfect condition of these belongings, the fact that there was no blood, no bones, or any real signs of death, well, it was quite simply puzzling. Had Robert simply passed away from the elements? If so, they would expect to find some sort of DNA at war around the scene. Deputies Mel Newhouse and Norman Thrasher were present at the discovery and described the scene as very odd, as not one single bone or bone fragment has ever been recovered despite an extremely detailed search. Robert had just up and vanished, and the only clues left behind were an assortment of things he had on the day he disappeared. After so much time has passed, and under such grueling conditions, there was no way Robert could still be alive, Though his body was never discovered, the coroner signed his death certificate in the same year they found his belongings. This meant he was now legally deceased and his family could move forward with funeral arrangements. One year later, Robert's dentures were found in the same area his clothing and gun were previously located. No new discoveries have been reported since, and Robert Winter's case remains a mystery, not only for his family and locals in the area, but also for investigators, hunters. And outdoorsmen alike. What do you think happened to Robert Winters? Case number two David Peltier, still missing. This case also involves a missing hunter, and like Robert Winters, David Lee Peltier has never been found. On November 3rd, 2018, Lee Peltier and his three friends decided to take a brief but familiar hunting trip through Namadji State Forest in Hinkley, Minnesota. All four men were experienced outdoorsmen. They weren't dressed for nasty weather, though, as this particular hunt was meant to be a quick expedition for lunch. Lee headed towards a nearby pond with John Warner, who was a part owner of the cabin they were using. According to Peltier's daughter, John and Lee separated intentionally with plans to meet up again. John made his way to higher ground top the bluff while Lee walked along the pond's edge to flush out any deer. The hope was to send them straight into John's awaiting sights. But things didn't go according to plan. Peltier never showed up for lunch that Saturday, but his friends assumed he was trailing a deer. They really didn't think much of it at first, but soon an hour turned into a couple of hours then dusk, and shortly thereafter it was dark. Lee's friends were officially starting to worry. With no cell service to be found, the men built a huge bonfire outside the cabin and listened for gunshots. If a hunter is in distress, they'll shoot three shots into the air, so they were waiting to hear anything like that, which they did not. They stayed up all night waiting for him. Megan De Courcy, one of Lee's daughters, explained in an interview shortly after he went missing, The unkind change in weather hindered the search for their friend. The rain turned to snow and the temperature had dropped below 20 degrees. With the elements working against them, it was eventually decided to continue their search on foot in the morning. At dawn, the three men went out to continue their search for Lee. Then they headed down toward town, over a half hour drive away, to call 911. That call came and did dispatch at 11.24 a.m., and within less than an hour, a real search was underway for Lee Peltier. The initial search included five officers from the Pine County Sheriff's Office and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, who searched on foot and by ATV until nightfall. The next morning, friends and family from the metro area came to help search the area that the hunters were in, encircles nearly 93,000 acres in Pine and Carleton counties. Search crews and investigators reported the wet and treacherous terrain, such as swamps, bogs, dense tree lines, which all made the search incredibly difficult. You have to see it to believe it. It's just one giant bog, Lee's son David said of the search area. There's some high ground in there, but not very much. It's so thick it's easy to get turned around. We had a group of 12 of us in a search party and we thought we were walking west and then we stopped and looked at the compass and we were going southeast he continued they typically find lost people within a half mile of their last known location but i think it's a lot further away than they think he was physically fit and i think he covered a lot of ground david believes his father who visited the same cabin the previous winter became hypothermic due to the conditions he faced combined with the lack of protective gear he was last seen wearing According to Lee's daughters, their father didn't have a backpack, water, or even a lighter on them. They, along with the others, speculated he could have possibly fallen into the pond he was circling, or he could have gotten turned around subsequently getting lost. In an interview towards the end of the search, the family said, every time they walked out of that forest, they felt like they were leaving Lee behind. They continue to search the area and ask locals to help keep their eyes open. They know he's still out there. When investigators received cell phone records from AT&T, they showed that Lee made three phone calls at 1.40pm on November 3rd, one to each of his three fellow hunters. According to Lee's daughter, his phone hadn't died until 5.30 the next morning. She recounts that if he had somehow fallen or gone into the water on Saturday, his phone could have died long before Sunday morning. It's so hard and confusing because you think one thing makes sense and then it doesn't, she said. He's been hunting all his life. He grew up on a farm, he loved the outdoors, he would have known to fire his gun. If he were going to take cover, if he found a cave or something, he would have put a clue outside, left some sign. There has never been any recovered evidence relating to this case. No leads since the initial investigation in 2018. No DNA has ever surfaced in or around the area where he went missing. Unfortunately, as it stands today... Nobody knows for sure what happened to Lee Peltier. Case number four, Danny Filippidis, missing six days. Firefighter Danny Filippidis suffered a head injury and went missing while he was on an annual ski trip with co-workers. What is especially puzzling about Danny's case isn't that he just went missing but also when and where he was found. Danny actually ended up wandering around a parking garage in Sacramento six days after he vanished from a ski resort in Lake Placid, New York. Not only were these places over 2,000 miles apart, but Danny had no recollection of how he had gotten to California in the first place. What's more, he didn't even recognize the clothes he was wearing, the items he held, or his surroundings. It was entirely foreign. For a while. Danny and his loved ones weren't sure exactly what happened to him, not literally or medically. Over time, doctors and police have been able to fill in some of the blanks, determining Danny's unusual ordeal came about as a result of a head injury sustained on that fateful trek to retrieve his cell phone. You see, it was the Toronto Fire Service's annual ski trip to Lake Placid, New York, and as it was coming to an end, Danny decided to capture some photos for their last night. That's when he realized he had forgotten his phone in the car. He and his friends were in the lodge about halfway up Whiteface Mountain, which meant it would be quite the ordeal to grab it. He told friends he planned to ski down to his car, and they could document the end of their trip when he returned. But this relatively simple journey turned into a mind bending journey for the 50 year old fire captain. A journey he will likely never fully remember. So, what does he remember? Philippidis believes the calamity began when he took a wrong turn on the way back to the car. He has no recollection of a supposed fall that knocked him out and likely caused the concussion, but remembers coming to at dusk. Danny was feeling sore and disoriented but made his way toward what he thought to be the main ski lodge. However, when he arrived, he found it was closed and deserted. Investigators later determined Danny likely fell near a children's ski slope, then worked his way to the main lodge or hub of a child's program, a sparsely populated area that would have been closed at the time. Danny's memories of what happened next are considered fragmented at best. He suspects he flagged down a truck and hopes to secure a ride off the mountain. He has a memory of climbing into a warm truck cab while still wearing his ski boots and winter clothing and being sick on the side of the road. He remembers learning that they were driving through Utah. I'd never been out that way, he told reporters, a kind of added to my confusion and feeling of not really knowing what was going on because I'm not familiar with that part of the country. He remembers the sharp impression of these particularly crushing headaches and that he experienced intense fatigue which left him unable to do much, other than sleep, as he unknowingly moved further away from Lake Placid. He had hoped it was all just a bad dream, but gave way to the grim reality when after a few days on the road, the trucker informed him that they had reached the end of the line in Sacramento. To this day, Danny maintains he doesn't know the trucker's identity, and authorities have never been able to locate him. Danny found himself wandering, intent on contacting his wife, but not sure how. Miraculously, he still had the credit card he used to pay for his lift pass in Lake Placid, along with some cash. With this, he was able to purchase a cell phone, but this was not an easy task given that the fact he had no form of identification, only the card. Even after obtaining a phone, Danny couldn't immediately remember his wife's number. He ended up on the internet, and that's when he realized he was the subject of a missing person investigation. The very next day, he flagged down a ride to the Sacramento airport. While there, he was finally able to recall his wife's number. His frantic family then urged him to call 911, ultimately landing him in the hospital for evaluation. I feel fortunate that I'm here talking today because of all the potential things that could have resulted, he says. Danny's inability to recall what happened and his head injury not being known about initially created room for speculation. Some suggested he planned the disappearance for exposure, but there's no real proof he actually received any positive attention for this event. And there certainly isn't any real motive. There were a lot of people who found it suspicious that Danny could only recall certain details or that he somehow safely traveled over 2,000 miles with no understanding how. Regardless of what happened while he was missing, what we do know is that he experienced head trauma, so it shouldn't be excluded as a possible explanation for why he's unable to recall what happened in that six-day period. In fact, it's probably the most likely explanation. Doctors were the ones to present this theory after performing several brain scans. They suggested his misadventures and missing time were side effects of amnesia suffered as a result of a traumatic head injury. Dr. Charles Tater, director of the Canadian Concussion Center at the Toronto Western Hospital, states amnesia can take place in about a quarter of all concussion cases, adding that headaches, fatigue, nausea, and islands of memory are all classic symptoms. Most people make a complete recovery, although the amnesia will likely last forever, Tater says. He will probably forever have those blanks. Danny confirmed this as recently as 2019 and stated he is content with the fact that he will likely never remember those six days. He's also grateful because unlike so many others, he's not still missing nor does he suffer any long-term brain damage or negative side effects. As of 2022, Danny Philippidus remains a firefighter with the Toronto Fire Department, and he considers himself very lucky. Case number 4. Steve Kubecki. Missing 15 months. The last case we'll cover today is one of the strangest I have ever come across. It's the story of a man who vanished while skiing only to turn up halfway across the country 15 months later with no idea how he got there. Stephen Kubecki was 23 years old when he vanished from Holland, Michigan, on February 19, 1978. At the time, he was a student at Hope College and before disappearing, he told roommates he was going cross-country skiing along the Lake Michigan coastline to Sagatuck. Hours later, when Stephen still had not returned back, His roommates called the police. Soon, the state police and Coast Guard were using helicopters and tracking dogs to locate the student who had been missing for an undetermined amount of time. Search crews found his skis, poles, backpack, and footprints. His tracks led roughly 200 yards out into the frozen surface of Lake Michigan, then abruptly stopped. Fifteen months passed without anyone seeing or hearing from Stephen. Stephen although they were never able to determine why he removed his equipment to venture out onto the frozen lake in the first place. Local police assumed he fell through the ice and drowned. He was presumed dead, and Hope College issued his degree in absentia. The detectives who investigated his disappearance did have their doubts about the drowning theory, though. They even sent Stevens' dental records to Chicago to see if he might be among the unidentified victims of serial killer John Wayne Gacy but those results came back negative. His family mourned him, but Stephen's parents, who are no longer alive, never believed their son was dead. Desperate to find him, they had a private investigator working on this case the entire time. Then, the unimaginable happened. On May 5th, 1979, Stephen Kubecki suddenly woke up somewhere he didn't recognize. He was in a meadow, wearing someone else's clothes, and there was a nearby backpack he didn't recognize as his own. When he looked inside the backpack, he found it was full of maps. I would guess I was hitchhiking. Q Becky recalled of this initial moment. He then walked into town and looked at a newspaper Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Then he noticed the date. He was shocked to find 15 months had passed and he was 700 miles away from where he vanished. After his reappearance, Q. Becky told reporters when he first came to, he had $40 in cash, new glasses, shoes, and a t-shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin. "'I felt like I've done a lot of running,' he said in an interview after his return. His memory up to his disappearance remained intact, and he reported his last memory was of feeling cold and scared and being lost in a frozen darkness. In the bag full of maps, there was also hitchhiking signs which suggested Stephen had already traveled very widely." from Sacramento to San Francisco to Reno, Chicago, Utah. According to him, he had not been planning to travel to any of these places. In his initial police interview, he stated he may have been heading to his father's house, which sat about 40 miles outside of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, but he made no plans to visit him, so he couldn't be sure. Stephen has, and still claims to have, no recollection of anything that happened during his 15-month disappearance. So how or why does he have memorabilia from marathons he cannot remember? It's sort of terrifying, but the more you read about Stephen, the more you understand that he's equally, if not more, invested in this story than anyone. It's truly a wild mystery. What's also mysterious is Stephen's response to requests for interviews since his initial reappearance. Outside of his initial police interview, he has absolutely refused to speak to the media or any sort of news outlet about the incident though he did co-author a book. The title, you ask? Meta-Mathematical Foundations of Existence, Godel, Quantum, God, and Beyond. Yeah, and no, I haven't gotten around to reading it quite yet, but anyone can purchase the novel online, and there are some excerpts on his website. The book essentially lays out Kubeki's thoughts on the inconsistencies and incompleteness of our understanding of reality. Speculation by UFO enthusiasts only grew once Kubecki published the work. For many, Stephen's own assertion that our universe is at best incomplete and at worst inconsistent just further fueled their speculation that something truly extraordinary happened to him in 1978. With all the basics missing from his memory, they're really missing from history too. There's just about enough information to ensure that we can't be sure about anything. Had Stephen walked across Lake Michigan? If so, where was he headed? And why did he strip down first? How did Stephen sustain life for 15 months yet have no memory of it? Whose clothes was he wearing when he woke up? And where did those maps come from? The list of questions goes on and on, with most of them still remaining a mystery. Even for Stephen, we may never know what really happened, or who else it could be happening to right now. Some people attribute the region itself to playing a part in Stephen's mysterious absence. Significantly smaller in size than the widely known Bermuda Triangle, the mystery of the Michigan Triangle could be a video all of its own. The Lake Michigan Triangle has been the site of several unexplained disasters, whether it be aerial crashes, shipwrecks, or vanishings. These events date back centuries. It seems to start with the disappearance of a Hackley and Hume lumber schooner, That was making its trip home to Muskegon in 1891. This wasn't a long trip by any means, and it was quickly noticed when the ship never made it across. But where it went remained a mystery for nearly 115 years. Interestingly, this mystery has been solved for the most part, though widely ignored. Perhaps, legends are sometimes more fun than facts. The 132-foot, three-masted schooner was found and identified with near certainty at the bottom of Lake Michigan's southern portion in 2005. Taras Lysenko, a diver with ANT Recovery out of Chicago, discovered the wreck in 2005 while a Lake Michigan shipwreck hunter and searcher helped identify the wreckage. Elizabeth Sherman, a maritime author and great-granddaughter of the schooner's namesake, presented the discovery at the Great Lakes Conference at the Great Lakes Naval Memorial and Museum. In addition, the discovery is a glimpse into the true power of the Great Lakes and the estimated 8,000 ships at the bottom. Divers have even confirmed a Stonehenge-like structure underwater in Lake Michigan. A Lake Michigan Stonehenge? Quite possibly. Yeah, this is a real thing. Features are similar to those found in England, including one large one with some sort of carving or writing on it. Another strange event in the area took place in 1950 when 2501 USS Airlines crashed into Lake Michigan. It was presumed the deadliest accident in American history, yet there was never any wreckage. A severe electrical storm is supposedly what caused the plane to crash, but in addition to zero wreckage, no bodies were ever recovered. So what happened? Did the plane fly into another dimension? Who knows? This one actually remains completely unsolved. Without going too deep into the mysteries surrounding the Lake Michigan Triangle, we can at least safely say it has been the site of some strange occurrences. And, even Stephen Kubecki's case is right there on top of the list. For decades, he has refused to speak about his disappearances with reporters. He has ignored any attempts to reach him, and his only known family has done the same. Their lips are sealed. Well, sort of. A newly published book by author Dylan James Quarles Claims to be the untold story of Stephen Kubecki and written in partnership with Kubecki himself. I, I personally haven't read it yet. However, a few quick searches on the internet confirm that Stephen has not released anything new regarding his experience, meaning no new memories have surfaced. So, is this real or fake? Well, it wasn't fake because Stephen Kubecki actually did disappear, but there's no proof that it wasn't of his own accord, nor is there proof that it was. Some would argue that the most logical theory is that Quebeci suffered an emotional or mental health episode, one that made him disappear from society for a spell before returning when he felt like it. Stephen has always denied this theory, maintaining he did not disappear of his own accord and confirming that he does not suffer from any mental health disorders. Today, Quebeci remains alive and well, working as a psychologist in the Pacific Northwest. He still maintains having no memory of those fifteen months he was missing. Well, guys, that's it for tonight, but don't worry. You know I'll have something new in a couple of days. Besides, if you get really bored, you can always hop on over to my second channel and check out the Dark Side Podcast. You'll find more of the true horror you already love with bonus deep dives into everything from gaming to other YouTubers. So, what did you think about this episode? Have you heard about these cases before, or did you find them interesting? I'd love to hear your thoughts and even theories in the comments. Thank you so much for tuning in, and have a great night, everybody. Be sure to punch that like button in the face like it just insulted your mom's famous macaroni casserole. Subscribe if you're new as it helps the channel grow. Join me over on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those other good social medias. And I'll see you all soon with another creepy video.